Hello, I'm Greg. Welcome back to part four of this talkback series for January, looking at Inappropriate Conversations number 150. It was originally released in September of 2014 as a three and a half hour podcast. And what that means is now that we are in part four, in fact, probably halfway through part three, we've crossed over to the halfway mark that uh, we're on the shorter side for the next three episodes that I intend to post in fairly quick succession, either through the end of January or very early February. Today's, in fact, will be the shortest of the chunks that I've put together. And basically, I've done this by slicing up Inappropriate Conversations 150 in the points that I took a breath and paused and inserted a promotional clip for other podcasts that I listened to. Some of those were planned in advance, but a lot of them were somewhat spontaneous as I was reading through the scriptures in the order that I intended to share them. This one is going to pick up with the concept of whether all the people who surrounded Jesus, including his own family, were actually on board. Spoilers, they were not. And in fact, I would argue that if you look at the news and the headlines in uh, Christianity today, we're going to find that there's still a heck of a lot of Christians, including very influential, prominent Christians, who still aren't on board with who Jesus was and what he taught. Oh, they're on board with the idea of Christ. But a lot of things that Jesus said and taught and demonstrated and did just yeah, don't go down all that well, I suppose. Because this is the shortest of the clips from the six-pack I've sliced together, if I keep the intro short, it might be the shortest inappropriate conversations posting I've ever done. But I will take advantage of the short runtime of this particular excerpt to cover some of the you know, more house-cleaning materials. For example... Most of the inappropriate conversations in the first year or two ended with the one-liner that if you'd like to insert some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The Hotmail address alone probably gives some indication of how long I've been using the same email address, and it goes back even further than that, actually. But IC underscore Greg at Hotmail is a good way to get a hold of me. I also interact on Twitter. IC underscore Greg is the handle there. For Facebook, there is a separate Facebook page for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. I share the podcasts as they get posted there, but I also share articles, things that I'm thinking of, things I'm considering for future shows, including callbacks like this one. If a different drummer comes to mind or does something prominently or is historically remembered if they've uh, died... I will share those on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. Uh, finally, one other shout-out, because uh, this could go on and on. Uh, inappropriate Conversations can be found on Stitcher and iTunes. I personally use Dogcatcher. Just about any way you can catch podcasts, you can catch Inappropriate Conversations, including through Google. But the other one I'd like to mention is SoundCloud. Instead of posting more uh, lookbacks to an audio clip or hint of the earlier shows, working my way up into the hundreds, heading hopefully toward 200 this year. Putting some, you know, again, a preview of every past inappropriate conversation. And for Walk the Earth, it's the actual point between the question and the prayer, almost the shows in their entirety. I've set that aside for now to do some of these talkbacks. I will pick that up later on in 2019, when I get to posting new material again, that may not be till February late or March, we will see. But for now, picking up where I left off in Inappropriate Conversations number 150, 
with the question of whether or not the uh, family and even some of the followers of Jesus were on board with what he was teaching, or did they find it to be confusing, or perhaps even dangerous? We'll see. Thanks for listening. Was everybody on board with these ideas of Jesus and the words he was preaching? Well, we know that everybody wasn't. It's actually, it's easy pickings from a a sharpshooting perspective to point the crosshairs at the Pharisees. The Pharisees are mentioned numerous times. The Sadducees don't get a clean break either. Uh, When Jesus is mentioning teachers of the law and scribes, there's a lot of people who are in positions of religious authority who were rejecting what it was that Jesus said. I would say to you that I view the religious right in America today as by and large being just as much a group of Pharisees as the people that Jesus was sparring with on a regular basis, because those are the religious authorities of our day who seem to be contradicting the directions that we get from Jesus on a regular basis. Ideas about whether we should be taking care of immigrant children who've come to flee a murderous rampage in their country. Jesus would say, yes, the religious right, the Pharisees in our era Well, they've certainly said no, haven't they? But that's not all there was. There were doubts among Jesus' own circle. There were doubts even within his family. So we read in Mark chapter 3, beginning verse 20 through 35, we get this interesting passage which calls a couple of things to question. It calls to question the idea of whether Mary and Joseph had children. Clearly, according to Mark's gospel, they did. And it also calls to question about whether or not we can take for granted that Jesus' family was on board. Clearly, from Mark's gospel, they were not. Picking up with verse 20. Then Jesus went home. Again, such a large, large crowd gathered around that Jesus and his disciples had no time to eat. When his family heard about it, they set out to take charge of him because people were saying he's gone mad. Some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem were saying he has Beelzebub in him. It is the chief of the demons who gives him the power to drive them out. So Jesus called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan, Jesus said. If a country divides itself into groups which fight with each other, that country will fall apart. If a family divides itself into groups which fight each other, the family will fall apart. So if Satan's kingdom divides into groups, it cannot last, but will fall apart and come to an end. No one can break into a strong man's house and take away his belongings unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder the house. I assure you that people can be forgiven all their sins and all evil things they may say. But whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven because he has committed an eternal sin. Jesus said this because some people were saying, he has an evil spirit in him. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. They stood outside the house and sent in a message asking for him. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, and they want you. Jesus answered, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He looked at the people sitting around him and said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does what God wants is my brother, my sister, my mother. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 24, Jesus reminds us right here near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only those who do what my Father in heaven wants them to do. When the judgment day comes, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name we spoke God's message. By your name we drove out many demons and performed many miracles. Then I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you wicked people. Also, Luke chapter 13, verse 22 to 30. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching the people and making his way toward Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Sir, will just a few people be saved? Jesus answered them, Do your best to go in through the narrow door, because many people will surely try to go in but will not be able. The master of the house will get up and close the door. Then when you stand outside and begin to knock on the door, say, Open the door for us, sir. He will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you will answer, We ate and drank with you. You taught in our town. But he will say, I don't know where you come from. Get away from me, all you wicked people. How you will cry and gnash your teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, while you are thrown out. People will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down at the feast in the kingdom of God. Then those who are now last will be first, and those who are now first will be last. So we've got Jesus talking in a couple of passages in Matthew and Luke about this concept of gnashing of teeth. And the thing I think that probably should frighten the religious right more than anything else is the very real risk that despite all the things they have said and done in Jesus' name, Jesus is going to say, I kind of told you what I had in mind. You went off and did a completely different thing. And now you're pretending that you know me? You're a comers-on showing up with you know a half a handful or a half dozen of Honduran children murdered when we met them at the border of our country, evangelical Christians more than anyone else, as a matter of fact, and sent them back home because our country was too much of a Christian nation, was too much of a sovereign state, was too much at risk from these you know non-English-speaking poor people to risk bringing them into our society and providing them asylum. It strikes me as exactly the kind of thing that might lead Jesus to say, hey, you know what? I never knew you. I did know a handful of Honduran children, but I never knew you. To me, the worst thing about the political approach here, to switch over to the political side of an inappropriate conversations show, is how often the politics of the religious right is used to divide. The notion is that we can't have that kind in here. Or you're either you're either for small government or you're out, or whatever the dividing line is. The, the notion of wedge issue, which frankly those who have courted the vote of the religious right have turned into, you know, just act, an actual political staple of sorts, those wedge issues and the wedges that they create fly right in the face of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 3. If a country divides itself into two groups with fight with fight with each other, that country will fall apart. You don't get there because one side wins and the other side loses. You get there by having both sides defer to a greater authority. And it's interesting to me that what Christians should do by deferring to the authority of God himself they tend not to do. Jesus tells us that some people are born that way, and we're just going to have to get used to it. And the religious right right now, from the perspective of opening the closet of Christian homophobia, is just unwilling to get used to the idea that Jesus might be okay with somebody who's engaged in homosexual acts if he has great faith, if he humbles himself before the Lord. That humbling yourself before the Lord is much more important than being quote-unquote right all the time. But really, this question from the perspective of 
homosexuality, and it all comes down to the, the obsession over gay marriage. And I think a lot of this, I've, from an inappropriate conversations perspective, especially from a political perspective, has sort of sat on the sidelines. And I guess maybe it's important that before I go further and quote again from Mark's gospel, I might want to make clear what my perspective here is, because I'm not sure I've accomplished it as well as I should. I believe that the government should be out of the marriage business. I don't think that it serves Christianity well for us to have um, something that we view as a sacred, almost sacrament. For for some Christian denominations, marriage is an actual sacrament. Why in the world are we yielding it to the hands of government? We ought to be holding it in the church where it belongs. How do you get there? Well, you get there by saying that the government is in the business of civil unions and that everybody, including my own marriage, is from the perspective of the uh, of the U.S. government or the state that I live in, not truly a marriage. It's simply a civil union. It's an agreement of how I, as a person in a relationship with somebody that could be viewed as contractual, could also be viewed as sacred, but whatever that relationship is, it is recognized by the state in the same way that other relationships are, regardless of age, sex, creed, color, sexual orientation, no matter what. The state should not care. The state should simply in the, be in the business of making sure that due process is followed and that everyone has equal rights. That's the American scripture. But that doesn't mean marriage goes away. It just means that what we call marriage moves into the church. And if you've got a church that refuses to allow the word marriage to be applied to a couple who come to see you with a piece of paper that says they've already engaged in a civil union with the state and that they want to have the ceremony to actually create a marriage in the eyes of God, you have the right to say no to that. Period. Now, that should be sacred. That any church has the right to marry whom they please, and they have the right to not marry whom they please. And maybe the only stipulation we provide is that there be a civil partnership in place to make sure that no laws are being broken. To make sure that, that people are not being abused. Uh, people being forced into forced marriages too young. Or um, multiple partner marriages, where we know that there tends to be a lot of coercion and abuse engaged in those relationships. It answers the questions that people raise and fear about pedophilia and bestiality and all that other sort of stuff. The, the state's not going to grant a civil union between you know a 40-year-old man and a 4-year-old girl. It's not going to happen. But if the state recognizes a civil partnership between two homosexual men, two lesbians, then you as a church have the option to say either yes to that or no to that. I'm going to marry these people or I'm not going to marry these people. And there's not anything that anybody should be able to do. And I, I fear that we may be tilting the balance and trying to establish equal rights for people in a place where the state is so out of whack on the issue, all over the map on the issue, to be honest with you, with different states having different perspectives, that we may be stuck in a place where the pendulum could swing too far the other way. The government should not have the right to tell a church what it must do or what it must not do in relationship with a partnership, whether it's a civil partnership or a state-recognized marriage or not. The, the church and state relationship should be preserved in that manner. But too often today, we're seeing people whose entrepreneurial business model is based around commerce, who are not priests, who are not bishops, who are not pastors in the sense of pastoring a local church, asserting that they have some sort of cathedral rights in terms of how they interact with others. It's appropriate for the state to say people have the right to engage freely in commerce without prejudice, regardless of race, color, creed, so forth and so on. And you do not get to assert your religious faith in that avenue. But at the same time, 
if a civil partnership concept like the one I envisioned when this issue first cropped up about 10 years ago, if that were to be the law of the land today, it would still be a law that protects a church that says, I refuse to marry those two people. That ought to be good enough, refusing to marry those two people for any reason whatsoever. In fact, I would actually tell that interracial couple that I'm not sure you want to be able to force that church to marry you against its will. Because why should the most sacred day in your relationship be tarnished by the hateful prejudice of the pastor that you're asking to lead the ceremony? That's kind of where I stand on this issue. But the biggest problem that the churches have when they begin to assert some sort of apocalyptic vision to the significance of marriage, when they start talking about God striking us all dead because the state may recognize the legal rights of people who are in a marriage relationship that that particular church may not have been willing to participate in by marrying the couple, they make an argument about an eternal quality of marriage, which we know from the Bible is not true. We know it from Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 34. Then some Sadducees, who say that people will not rise from death, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, Moses wrote this law for us. If a man dies and leaves his wife but no children, then that man's brother must marry the widow so that they can have children who will be considered the dead man's children. Once there were seven brothers. The oldest got married and died without having children. Then the second one married the woman, and he also died without having children. The same thing happened to the third brother, and then to all the rest. All seven brothers married the woman and died without having children. Last of all, the woman died. Now, when all the dead rise to life on the day of resurrection, whose wife will she be? All seven of them had married her. Jesus answered them, How wrong you are! And do you know why? It's because you don't know the scriptures or God's power. For when the dead rise to life, they will be like the angels in heaven and will not marry. Now, as far as being, as far as the dead being raised, haven't you ever read in the book of Moses the passage about the burning bush? There it is written that God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. You are completely wrong. A teacher of the law was there and heard the discussion. He saw that Jesus had given the Sadducees a good answer, so he came up with a question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied, The most important one is this. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God is the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. The second most important commandment is this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment more important than these two. The teacher of the law said to Jesus, Well done, teacher. It is true, as you say, that only the Lord is God, and that there is no other God but He. And you must love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and with all your strength, and you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is more important to obey these two commandments than to offer on the altar animals and any other sacrifices to God. Jesus noticed how wise his answer was, and so he told him, You were not far from the kingdom of God. After this, nobody dared to ask Jesus any more questions. But I wonder what questions would the Jesus plus people have asked if they were there at that time. 
Because the Jesus plus crowd believes that these two commandments are important, as Jesus says, but also the Ten Commandments, and also all the rules about sexual morality, and also, and also, and also, and also. And, and, and what I tend to hear when I tell people that, no, it really comes down to just love God and love your neighbor. And with the Holy Spirit's power, you will not do anything that is offensive to the Lord, even if it appears to break the letter of the Old Testament laws. Their question to me might be, therefore their question back to Jesus might be, well, show me exactly what you're talking about. Are you even quoting the Old Testament correctly? Because the Old Testament has the law, not the New Testament. As if, as I've shared before, that idea is even relevant. But just to humor people, I will go back to the Old Testament, and we'll see if Jesus has described accurately what's written there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. These are all the laws that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Obey them in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. As long as you live, you and your descendants are to honor the Lord your God and obey all his laws that I am giving you, so that you may live in that land a long time. Listen to them, people of Israel, and obey them. Then all will go well with you, and you will become a mighty nation, and live in that rich and fertile land just as the Lord, the God of our ancestors, has promised. Israel, remember this, the Lord, and the Lord alone is our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Never forget the commands I am giving you today. Teach them to your children. Repeat them when you are at home, and when you are away, and when you are resting, and when you are working. Tie them on your arms. Wear them on your foreheads as a reminder. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. And Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. Be honest and just when you make decisions in legal cases. Do not show favoritism to the poor or fear the rich. Do not spread lies about anyone. And when someone is on trial for his life, speak out if your testimony can help. I am the Lord. Do not bear a grudge against others, but settle your differences with them so that you will not commit a sin because of them. Do not take revenge on others or continue to hate them, but love your neighbors as you love yourself. I am the Lord. So if that, as they say, is the word of God written for the people of God in the time of the Old Testament, what is the word of God on this matter written for the people of God in the time of the New Testament? It's Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And it says some very ironic things about the attitude of many religious conservatives about our government today, starting with verse 1. Everyone must obey state authorities because no authority exists without God's permission, and the existing authorities have been put there by God. Whoever opposes the existing authority opposes what God has ordered, and anyone who does so will bring judgment on himself. For rulers are not to be feared by those who do good, but by those who do evil. Would you like to be unafraid of those in authority? Then do what is good, and they will praise you, because they are God's servants working for your own good. But if you do evil, then be afraid of them, because their power to punish is real. They are God's servants, and carry out God's punishment on those who do evil. For this reason, you must obey the authorities, not just because of God's punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That is also why you pay taxes, because the authorities are working for God when they fulfill their duties. Pay then what you owe them. Pay them your personal and property taxes, and show respect and honor for them all. Be under obligation to no one. 
The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in the one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love, then, is to obey the whole law. Music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.